Before we dive into today's episode, I want to tell you about a free three-act worksheet to help you structure your story. Whether you're a plotter or a pantser, a novelist or short fiction writer, this three-act worksheet will help you navigate your material and even begin each new story with a better plan. Download yours at nancypinuccio.com forward slash act. Stop getting stuck in the middle of your draft. Go grab this free worksheet, nancypinuccio.com forward slash act. The main difference between a third-person narrator and first-person narrator is that in third-person, we generally don't doubt the reliability of the narrator because he seems more objective. But in first-person, we do doubt the degree of reliability, and the degree of unreliability has to do with the narrator's awareness of his or her own prejudices and skewed logic or his or her own bias. Writer Unleashed is for you, a writer who has a story you want to bring onto the page and into the hearts and minds of readers. I'm Nancy Pinuccio, writer, editor, and writing coach. And each week, we'll explore techniques, mindsets, and inspiration for writing stories readers can't put down. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let's begin. In episode 120, we touched upon how first-person narration is versatile. In this episode, I'm going to give you three different ways to use first-person narration, and I'm going to focus on who the first person is addressing. So I'm going to give you three varieties of first-person narration. Now, some of these are more appropriate for short stories, but they also make excellent character development exercises. Okay, so let's dig in. Number one, interior monologue. With interior monologue, somebody is speaking to him or herself. So he or she is thinking and we're overhearing this character's thoughts. With interior monologue, they're addressing themselves. It's their self-talk. Here's an example from Dorothy Parker's story, but the one on the right. I knew it. I knew if I came to this dinner, I'd draw something like this baby on my left. They've been saving him up for me for weeks. Now, we've simply got to have him. His sister was so sweet to us in London. We can stick him next to Mrs. Parker. She talks enough for two. Oh, I should never have come. Never. I'm here against my better judgment to a decision. That would be a good thing for them to cut on my tombstone. Wherever she went, including here, it was against her better judgment. This is a fine time of the evening to be thinking about tombstones. That's the effect he's had on me already, and the soup hardly cold yet. 
I should have stayed home for dinner. I could have had something on a tray. The head of John the Baptist or something. Oh, I should have never come. Okay, so internal monologue is a powerful way to reveal the internal conflict and to show the decision-making process going on inside that character's head. Now, few stories are told entirely this way. Sometimes a short story can be told entirely in interior monologue, as it is in Dorothy Parker's story. In a novel, though, you might want to do it sparingly. But it's a great exercise if you just want to get a deeper sense of your character. So it's a very handy writing exercise when developing character. So it's her own voice in her own head. So we get a sense of the main character's inner reality, and we pick up on greater conflicts to come. So number one, interior monologue. We're privy to this narrator's thoughts, the things she's saying privately to herself. Now, pay attention to the way you do this when you're in a situation that feels out of alignment for you or out of sync. What private conversation do you have with yourself? That's your internal monologue. Internal monologue addressing the self. Number two, dramatic monologue. Here we overhear somebody speaking aloud to another person. He or she has a particular reason for telling a particular story to his particular audience, and his speech, as in real conversation, is spontaneous and unrehearsed. We can tell where he is and who he's talking to from the reference he makes in the monologue. So there's an implied listener. This is similar to the theater. Whenever one character takes over the stage and talks for a long time without interruption. Now on stage, the purpose of monologue is to provide information about what has taken place off stage or to allow the character to explain himself or reveal himself. So there's a speaker and an implied listener. Here's a great example from Robert Cohen's short story, The Varieties of Romantic Experience, an Introduction. Good morning. It appears we have quite a turnout. This is an elective course, as you know from the catalog, and as such, it is forced to compete with several other offerings by our department, a great many of which are, as you've no doubt heard, scandalously shopworn and dull. And so may I take a moment to say that I am personally gratified to see so many of you enrolled here in Psych 308. So many new faces. I look forward to getting to know each. Yes, there are seats, I believe, in the last few rows. If the people, if the people there would kindly hold up a hand to indicate a vacancy beside the Yes, there. Thank you. I ask, by the way, that all assignments be neatly typed. I have no teaching assistant this term. I had one last spring, a very able one at that. Perhaps some of you met her. Her name was Emily. Emily Crane. Okay, so through monologue, he establishes his audience, a class of college students. 
he establishes his relationship to them, professor, and he establishes the setting from which he's addressing them, the classroom. He goes on to tell his class the story of his clandestine affair with his former assistant, Emily Crane. So he traces the history of the affair from its beginning to its disastrous and humiliating end. Throughout his monologue, he reminds us of who he's addressing by interjecting his tale with comments such as, there will be, did I mention, a midterm and a final. And may I have the first slide, please? After which he gives a brief dissertation on Emily Crane's unconventional beauty. So there's this dramatic irony. The professor just assumes his listeners look at the situation as he does. Now, this technique is great for short stories, but I don't think this would sustain a whole novel. I don't know of any novels that use this technique, but if you write short stories or you want to have some fun experimenting with the short story form, this is a lot of fun to play with. It's also a great way to get to know your characters. So dramatic monologue can sustain a short story, but it's also a great writing exercise if you're a novelist or even if you're writing in third person and you want another way in to your characters. Okay, on to number three, subjective first person. This is the most common use of first person. Now, all first person stories and even third person stories are subjective. The main difference between a third person narrator and first person narrator is that in third person, we generally don't doubt the reliability of the narrator because he seems more objective. But in first person, we do doubt the degree of reliability and the degree of unreliability has to do with the narrator's awareness of his or her own prejudices and skewed logic or his or her own bias. So with an unreliable subjective narrator, he or she's telling a story that lands a little differently for the reader than what the character himself intends to tell. Now, subjective first person is most effective when told in a retrospective voice. Now, many classic novels use the retrospective narrator, such as To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee and The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. In Catcher in the Rye, the narrator, Holden Caulfield, is unaware of his own prejudices. He thinks he's telling one story, but we as the reader are aware of this lack of self-awareness or self-denial. He's a tormented adolescent who's headed for mental collapse. Here's an excerpt. If you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me and all that David Copperfield kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into it if you want to know the truth. In the first place, that stuff bores me And in the second place, my parents would have about two hemorrhages apiece if I told them anything pretty personal about them. They're quite touchy about anything like that, especially my father. They're nice and all. I'm not saying that. But 
they're all so touchy as hell. Besides, I'm not going to tell you my whole goddamn autobiography or anything. I'll just tell you about this madman stuff that happened to me around last Christmas just before I got pretty run down and had to come out here and take it easy. Compare that to the self-awareness of Scout in To Kill a Mockingbird. When I passed the Radley place for the fourth time that day, twice at a full gallop, my gloom had deepened to match the house. If the remainder of the school year were as fraught with drama as the first day, perhaps it would be mildly entertaining, but the prospect of spending nine months refraining from reading and writing made me think of running away. So to question the reliability of the person who's telling us the story is to stop and really look at our own reliability or unreliability. To say that someone else is being subjective is to cop to our own subjectivity or unreliability. Here's another excerpt from My Side of the Matter by Truman Capote. I know what is being said about me, and you can take my side or theirs. That's your own business. It's my word against Eunice's and Olivia Ann's, and it should be plain enough to anyone with two good eyes which one of us has their wits about them. I just want the citizens of the USA to know the facts. That's all. The facts. On Sunday, August 12th, this year of our Lord, Eunice tried to kill me with her papa's Civil War sword, and Olivia Ann cut up all over the place with a 14-inch hog knife. This is not even to mention lots of other things. Now, how subjective is he? Well, we're not really sure. He states his side of the story as fact. Even when we're not sure whether a narrator is subjective or not, all we can do is test the narrator's perspective against our own. Now, in these examples, it's told by one of the characters after the conclusion of events. The speaker is supposed to be addressing us, the reader, not himself or another character. Okay, so let's wrap this up. First-person narration is versatile and comes in many varieties. The three types of first person we covered are, number one, internal monologue. In this first person, the character is speaking to him or herself, so we're overhearing his or her thoughts. Number two, dramatic monologue. Here, the character is addressing an implied audience. So, for example, in the Robert Cohen example, he's addressing the students in the room. That's who he's talking to, but we become the students in the classroom. And number three, subjective first person. This is the most common use of first person. It's most effective with a retrospective narrator who's telling the events after they've already happened and whose reliability we doubt. With this first person, the character is addressing us, the reader. So there you have it. 
I'm going on a brief hiatus to recharge for the new year. I'll be back in 2023 with a whole new season for you. I wish you all a beautiful holiday. In the meantime, come join us on our private Facebook group, Writer Unleashed Community. It's totally free to join. And let me know what you want to know more about or hear more of on the podcast. I read each and every one of your questions, and it helps me create topics for the show. I'll see you in 2023. Have a happy, healthy, and rejuvenating holiday season, my friends. Talk soon.